you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alra Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out on September 13th. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer. I've made two features, Speed of Life and Bread and Butter. I'm currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome producer, first-time feature film director, and NFT expert Rick Dugdale onto the show to talk about making his first feature film, Zero Contact, starring Anthony Hopkins, why he made it an international feature film, and how he capitalized on releasing the film through NFTs using his service of Yuli, which he actually co-founded. That's an NFT platform specifically for films. After that, we talk about an article from Screen Rant about Top Gun 2's stunts, which are incredible if you haven't seen it yet. And then we answer a listener question. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm not a good traveler. Like, maybe that's obvious. Maybe that's a statement that everyone has already (laughs) derived. They already know that knowledge. It's just too many things outside of my control, and it freaks me out. And we are leaving tomorrow for Alabama, which is where my husband is from. And it's not just, it's always two flights, two flights. So I'm just, uh, that is all I'm thinking about right now. It has nothing to do with movies. It has nothing to do with creativity, my day job. I'm just thinking about this plane ride tomorrow, plane rides tomorrow. So uh, when you when you get into Alabama, is it immediately banjos? Is like the first thing you hear when you land? Or is yeah, that completely stereotypical they and bullshit? And- with a Confederate flag and some fried chicken. Uh-huh. And yeah, there's dueling banjos. No, I mean, he's from Huntsville, which is like, I don't know if this is true, but it's like I've been told it's the highest per capita PhD population in the country. It's like all rocket scientists. Yeah, they all work in like missile defense or for the, you know, whatever, for some some cool engineering science thing. So it's like a very specific city in Alabama. And I like it. And I like the people there. I just don't like traveling. I don't like it. (laughs) <laughs> wow, well, that sounds exciting. Are you going to try to do any writing or anything while you're there? Or is it going to be like pretty much just family time the whole time? That's all you're going to do. I have my regular meetings with Amy. So I'm going to try to do my writing. Maybe the time difference will help. Maybe, you know, and also Sean's family, very sweet, very loving, like not like super talkative people. And they watch a lot of sports and they they're very forgiving of me who is not into the sports. So I think I just might tuck myself away and sit in front of my laptop as long as Colin is entertained during that time. Nice. Sounds awesome. How are you? I'm doing okay. I just came back from a traveling trip as well to Carson City to see my mom, which was really fun. BB saw her first ever steam train engine in action because they have like a little train that runs uh, in town. And that was really fun because I love trains. So I'm pushing my love of trains onto my Wait, I love, love, trains. love of your own. Oh, you love trains? Yeah. <laughs> oh, That's cool. So oh, we never talked about cool this. Looking. They're just cool looking things. They're very cool. I mean, especially, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've seen a steam engine before, but like all the pieces that move and like the way the, t- the, the wheels turn with yeah. the gears and the steam r- running the whole thing and they put coal in the tender. It's all very oh, cool. Yeah. And they're very loud, which is fun. <laughs> she was on my shoulder and they pulled the whistle when we were, it was pretty close to us and she just grabbed my head. <laughs> she didn't scream or anything. She just grabbed my head like, oh, okay, that was, that was, I was not expecting that. But then she like couldn't stop watching it. Like wherever we would go, she would just like turn her head and like angle her body towards the train. She was just like really curious. Yeah, movie related stuff. I don't know. I saw Top Gun too. That was amazing. 
to anyone who's seen it. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's a great movie. I wouldn't, I don't know. It's funny. Great movie? I guess so. It's a great blockbuster movie for sure. Like if you're going to put a category of blockbuster movies, it's definitely great in that category. But like when you compare it to like, you know, Barton Fink or something, like, I don't know if it's... (laughs) I lo- that is amazing that that is your go-to for great movie i also agree that that is one of the best movies like ever ever made oh my god martin fink is amazing well it's also like it's like a very perfect example to compare to a blockbuster because it's right. everything a blockbuster isn't but everything that a great movie is you know which is also lots of blockbusters have those things too but it's just like it's just such a great example because it's so different you know right. there's fire in burton fink though like that they have there is fire fire wait I forgot to mention, I watched the entirety of Stranger Things Season 4 Part 1 in two days. <laughs> oh, man. Ah, that's so funny. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I just finished Episode 3 last night, and uh, so far, it. thumbs up. I love it so much. It's good. I, I think the whole thing is... Re- I think it's almost as good as Season 1. I think it's... I just... Now mm. I forgot. That's like the thing that's exciting me is that I watched that. Oh, yay. Uh, man, I watched the first two episodes and there's like sort of a, a direction the story is going. And I'm like, I was starting to get a little annoyed. I was like, oh, really? They're going to do this to us? Like, we've seen this before. And then like at the end of episode three, it's basically, you know, revealed what's really going on. And you're like, oh, so much better. Thank you for, for not doing what I thought you were going to do. Ah, so great. Thank you. So now I'm excited to see the rest of the episodes. Well, I'm, I'm sort of bummed, though, because I heard recently that like the second part is just two episodes. Is that right? There's going to yeah. be only two. Our hope slash theory is that they're going to be like at least two hours long. That's what we think is going to happen. But I, I heard that, that they're going to be extra long episodes, like at least an hour and a half or something. But like, yeah. still, I kind of wish that like if they're going to have a second half, it should be at least as long as the first half. I mean, That's come on. I, people, want. Like, I just want here? more. I'm so upset that it's over. It's like. I was talking to a friend of mine this morning who's going through something and I was like, watch Stranger Things season four. It'll make your life better. Like, that's how I see it. It was just such a weird, unhealthy way of seeing it. But it was just a thrill to be immersed in the show for a few days. Yeah, but I mean, unless you like are terrified of things, because it is pretty scary, especially the first episode was pretty freaky, you know, and the way it ends. And, you know, we, we were watching it at my mom's house and we basically had to stop watching it. We watched it and then we had to watch something like a really light. So we watched The Muppet Show. Oh, yeah. After each episode oh, yeah. of Stranger Things to like kind of lighten the mood and, you know, make us um, not have nightmares. <laughs> we do that, too. We totally do that, too. But as long as you have like the buffer show, I think you could do it at night because it's not like it's not soulless. Like there's humor and there's like the camp and that. Oh, yeah. To it. There is a lot of humor, which is fun. You know, I love I love that part of it that they like. It's a good mix of like, like whatever, horror and comedy and both. Yeah. You know, what? Was, it's so funny because like, you know, I'm watching Better Call Saul, which I just finished the, oh, yeah, the season, the last episode of season six. And uh, this is exciting because they're doing another half of the season and there's going to be six more episodes. So it's like almost like completely split in two, you know, and it's like I was expecting the same thing from Stranger Things and they let me down. But uh, oh, well, I'm sure it'll still be great and I'll still be excited. So. Uh, I'll try to speak as vaguely as I can. They come to a an interesting conclusion at the end of part one that I think you huh. will feel like enough drama has been trafficked, I think, where you mm. won't feel so bad about there not being a part two. But, but you let me know mm. what you think. Good to know. Yeah, on, on other things, I haven't written anything <laughs> since last week, which is sad. I was like, going to do it this morning and I didn't. And then, um, yeah, no updates on my other project. But I'm supposed to hear this week, so we'll see. I'm not, not holding my breath, but we'll find out. Well, I have but- written... <laughs> 
You have written. Yeah. All all the conversations with you and Clinton Cornwell, by the way, this guy that I keep referring to, maybe I even said his name in the last episode, but Clinton Cornwell has been this, he's been a listener of the show. I actually am repping his film, 12 Months, which is like a wonderful film um, for festivals and for distribution. But he's the one who reached out saying, I'm interested in doing development coaching for artists that I've been vaguely referring to in the past few episodes. And he, you are my conversation with you, my conversation with Amy, my conversation with Clinton got me out of my weird writer's block and I'm, we've, I've been able to power through and has been, um, I'm very grateful to the three of you, but I still have a long road ahead while you'll be, you know, manifesting your wonderful, well-developed story in your mind. I'm going to be polishing for the next 20 years. So, well, who will have a better movie? That's the answer. Equally you good know, 20, movies. <laughs> I don't know. You put 20 years into something, I think it's going to be pretty Oof. damn good. Uh, that's my me. theory. I don't want Or if you put something aside, like Un- Unforgiven is my favorite story where like Clint Eastwood finds the script. He's not old enough to play the character. He sits on it for however many years it was, 10 years, 15 years, something. And then he makes it, you know, when he's old enough, it's like, ah, yeah. what a brilliant thing. What a great lesson to all us filmmakers out there. No rush. You can you can make it when you're ready. But what there is a rush to do is to go over to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash podcast. This week, we get to wish a very, very happy birthday to Stephen Sloan. Thanks so much for the love, Stephen. We couldn't make this podcast without your support. Don't forget to check out Jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. They even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is really, really cool. So definitely check those guys out. You can use our code MMIH to get 20% off of your subscription with them, which you must, must do. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Rick Dugdale. We are here with Rick Dugdale, director and producer of Zero Contact. Rick, welcome to the show. Right. Thanks for having me. Can you give us the elevator pitch for Zero Contact? Zero Contact is about a tech titan, Finley Harp, who has longer working on a uh, potential time machine. He's disappeared. Five people come together remotely and have to enter a code to potentially save all mankind, whether the machine turns on or not. So low stakes. How many days did you shoot? The f- did you shoot? How many days were considered production days for this film? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question because we were in a pandemic and the way we shot the film, truly from a shooting schedule, we probably, wow, I probably shot uh, 20 days. You know, it was, it was a six week kind of production schedule, but we were doing company moves from Tokyo to Germany to Serbia in the middle of the night. The biggest company moves you'll ever see in production, I'm sure. But it, it was, you know, it was a, probably a six week shoot, I think, in the end. And uh, what was the rough budget of the film, if you can say? I will say this is sub five. Can you give us even more of a range? We're not asking for specifics. We know that there's some danger to that question. But would you say, can you get a low end? Like it's over 500,000, but under it's definitely, Yeah, it's definitely way over 500,000. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the cool part about this film is that, you know, you had real high level professionals all around the world because the U.S. was on a pandemic, but so was Japan and so was Sweden. So we were able to pull in our friends and colleagues who we worked with in all of our normal, you know, bigger films in the past because they're also not doing anything. But with that, it allowed us to, yes, pay a little discounted prices because you could say you're not doing anything anyways. At the same time, you know, they're all high level professionals. So in the end, everyone was paid, you know, accordingly. And, and the budget was definitely way more than 500000 for sure. <laughs> how did you come up with the idea or how did the whole team come up with the idea? 
So, you know, we're a very writer-centric company at Enderby Entertainment, led by Dan Peachy Jr., my business partner, president of the Writers Guild Foundation, Academy Award-nominated writer, wrote Beverly Hills Cop, among others. The guy is a legend screenwriter. And so we've always focused our company to make sure that we surround ourselves with good screenwriters. And so Cam Cannon, who has joined our team three years ago, long friend of mine, with, with him and a lot of our international colleagues, week two of the pandemic, meaning we all thought there was one week left, I think, we had this think tank that came together and we said, well, look, how do you, how do you make a film if you can't be in the same room together? And so we started to kind of kick around some ideas. And, and I remember Jim Hart, who's a wonderful screenwriter, he was on there and he's like, I, I don't, you know, this, this is crazy if we can actually shoot a film like this. But Cam and I got together and I said, well, what if you had five world leaders assassinated at the same time by the same person around the world? And that was kind of the genesis of it. And yes, that should maybe become another film. But that was the genesis of like, how do you make something global? Because everyone we assumed, or we assumed somebody's going to make a Zoom movie. This is not a Zoom movie. We use Zoom to stand on set. But people are going to probably make a horror film because they think it's low budget. And they can make something scary on Zoom. So we said, those are two things we can't do. It can't be about COVID. It can't be a horror movie. And it can't feel like a Zoom movie. And so Cam started to come up with this idea. We workshopped it like 10, 10 days later. We had a script. And internally, we're not surprised because the guy writes so fast. But he turned in a script that we said, this actually works, both from a logistical standpoint. It ticks all the boxes. Call it a, the Enderby formula to the Hallmark formula. But it's, it's international. You have dialects. You have different accents. That increases the scope and scale of the film. It opens it up. We have drone shots. You have different countries. It's not your horror movie on Zoom about COVID. So that's kind of how it worked. We had 10 days later, we had a script. We said, let's go for it. And then it just became a pitch to the entire cast and crew. How long did you spend working on the film from idea to it being released? So we really just completed the film six, six, eight months ago and, and you know, got it delivered to Lionsgate in January, really. There was a version that obviously releases the NFT in, in September. That's a whole other world, a world building with Yuli in the NFT space. But you know, what happened is when we started shooting, we started shooting in June, July of the first year. But then as we got into post, the, the plan was initially to finish, ideate the film, shoot it right away, deliver it right away, and have it come to market while the pandemic's still going on. Now we got lucky because the pandemic dragged on for two plus years. But what happened is, is that once we got into post-production, you know, we have a great post team in-house, Ian Duncan, who's our visual effects producer. Everyone started looking at it. The sound engineers started looking at it going, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a sec. We, we need more time because this looks really good. This could be something special. So they were part of the team to kind of convince us to take the necessary time to make the film better. And so that's kind of what we did. We just, it took, you know, like a traditional film uh, post-production schedule. We probably posted for nine to 10 months and then from there deliverables and everything else. But we took the, the right time to finish the movie correctly. Compared to all the other projects you've ever made, how difficult was this one? This, this one was the hardest part was convincing people it wasn't going to be a waste of their time. And you could lead with, we're not doing anything anyways, so why don't we try this? But also, it was really hard for people to wrap their heads around because, you know, the actors, and fortunately, I had worked with all the actors pretty much before, but how do you act opposite somebody without the Steven Seagal effect, of course, where there's a stand-in? is you have this scenario where Alex Ponovic is having this very intense scene, but he's, not, he's never even met the other actors at this point. 
And so he's on Zoom. The AD is reading the lines opposite him. And they're having to give this performance that lacks chemistry, but that played into what we wanted because that lack of chemistry is all of what we've all felt this lack of connection for two years living in this digital world of Zoom. So the hardest part was, no, no, trust us. You just got to trust us. This is how it's going to work. And in our heads, like I could tell Chris's performance from you know, last week when we shot him, you know, first of his 10 days of shooting and Riku's performance in Japan. And it was really unique to see once they came around to the idea. But the hardest part about this film was certainly convincing people it could actually be something. And for me, when the night when Chris Pershu performed and people were in tears on Zoom, all of us, it was like, wow, you, you can get a performance in this medium. And it was, it was really cool to see that. So I'm really, really curious about the whole NFT release plan for the movie. So can you just talk about like why you decided to do that, how you went about doing that? And then, I mean, the, the final question, of course, was like, was it successful? Like, was it a profitable experience releasing the movie through um, an NFT? Yeah. So when we, when we sh- uh, completed the film and we started to show it to some of our agents and colleagues and everyone kind of said the same thing is that, this, this worked. Uh, there's a story here. This is something that you can engage an audience. We started looking at it as, okay, well, what's the distribution model? Obviously, when we made the film, the plan was to just get it out there, distribution colleagues or somebody that we've worked with in the past. But once we all looked at it and we screened it on a theater, which was the first time that we'd actually seen everybody. And there's only Cam and I had screened it in the theater. And it actually worked and looked good and held up in a big theater. Is That's when we decided, and I personally have been involved in blockchain and fintech probably since 2015. I called a colleague of mine, Cameron Shell, who is in fintech. And I said, what if you could release a film as an NFT? And he said, well, that's interesting. Let me find out. So the tech guys called me back the same day. said, yeah, we, we could build this. We could do it. So from that point, that day is when we founded Viewly. And going through that whole process and understanding and doing a deep dive on blockchain and NFTs... And to be clear, blockchain, crypto, NFTs are truly three different things. And I've always been interested in how, how do we go a step farther to engage our audience? It's not just a Facebook fan page. It's not just, you know, if you screen a movie in a movie theater and people buy the popcorn and they leave, you've lost them and they've lost you, right? So building a world with NFTs and giving people ownership, that the Netflix memberships are great, but it's not for everybody. People want that collectible. People want that they want that Blu-ray on their shelf. And in this case, the difference is, is the Blu-ray on your shelf, you can probably sell for more money than you paid for it, not just at the garage sale for a dollar, that will be inevitable. And so once we started going down that path, you realize that this, this was something that we could launch the platform with the film of this profile with Anthony Hopkins. And so we built the company from ground up. It took us eight months to build the whole platform. In terms of success, we were just in Cannes and the whole talk at Cannes was about Viewly as an NFT distribution platform. So I think that's our success for sure. There are multiple drops. We did the first 11 drops on OpenSea. Then we did a drop of 2,500 and 25,000 on Viewly. There's a whole marketing campaign coming up. Those will continue, especially as we do part two and three of Zero Contact. But what Viewly is and what NFT distribution represents is it's a revenue stream that never existed. It's not there to disrupt. That's a very negative word sometimes. And so... We're there to work with Netflix and Warner Brothers and Sony, and we will. And in this case, Lionsgate is that it's right now it's a different audience. So the NFT play, that whole market exposure that comes with an NFT strategy 
is just something that helps drive the traditional release. And as filmmakers, I think this is 20 to 30% of your finance plan moving forward. If you engage in an NFT strategy, not, a, not necessarily a token financing model, which can, can get into the gimmicky space, but this is a revenue stream that never existed that's ultimately going to finance more movies, I believe. Can you talk a little bit about talent agencies and their reaction to the NFT marketplace? I mean, I just think it's, as we all know, it's to a degree, it's the Wild West and we can't bake these things into talent contracts quite yet. So were they thrown that, they're, that NFTs were going to be involved in this film in any way or did they come in and they embrace that with the project? I would say thrown, yes. I mean, it, I spend a lot of my time on education and explain to them, no, no one's getting super rich off this. This isn't a $10 million people. It's not the Jack Dorsey tweet. This is, this is about another uh, revenue stream. This is, you know, in this case, it's, it'll generate uh, probably at least a million dollars. And that's all obviously transparent. So you can see that. But this is something that we had to look at it from coming into the space and knowing enough people in the space that you had to earn the respect of the community. You didn't want to be Hollywood coming in, guns a-blazing, cash grab and we're out because that's just a short-term play. Blockchain's here. It's here to stay. It's for real. Crypto's real. NFTs are real. And so we really wanted to come at it of a better understanding, again, being responsible to the community. When you talk about talent managers, again, it's, it's a lot of education, a lot of process. And right now, they're, they're getting caught up in smart contracts. And can we be part of the smart contract? And that's, that's not today. You know, like right now, NFT sales goes into the top of the waterfall, just like your TV license goes into the top of the waterfall. So right now, I think people are overcomplicating the, the process and the, the thinking. And it's tied to understanding crypto and blockchain and not knowing the difference. So we're trying to really just simplify things. Can, can you talk a little bit about how, like what you need to do as a filmmaker in order to take advantage of this? Like, like what kind of like connections or like what kind of work does it take to like get your, your movie out to be sold as an NFT? Cause I, I'm, I'm very kind of confused about the whole thing. Cause I've heard that like, you know, you, an NFT is like one unique like version of the movie, but are you making like multiple versions of it that like you send out or is it just one that you like rent out to people? I, I just help me understand like how it's actually working. Right. So you certainly can't rent it out. Just like when you buy a Blu-ray and you have the FBI warning, you, you don't have the right to exhibit, right? So you have the right to own and you can resell it. You can collect it and put it on your shelf. With Zero Contact, we release the one of one and then there's 10 and then we go on to 2,500. Those have inclusions that are super unique that you won't have in a traditional release. For example, the first 11, you have the right to shoot yourself into the film. So we've, we've zoomed in with people and you will play a role opposite Anthony Hopkins. So your version of the NFT that you can show your friends and family is you with Anthony Hopkins. That I don't think has ever been done before. And I'd love wow. to do it on a James Bond movie. If you could be the bartender where James Bond comes up and says, I'd like a martini and you deliver one line. That is something that is in the future, right? That is. And then your NFT that you paid millions of dollars for, for the James Bond movie. That, that's my, I was course listening to James Bond movie. It, it's fun. And this is about fan engagement, you know? And I think in terms of, you know, the one of one, when you release a movie, every film that Viewly releases will have a different strategy, a different drop schedule. And, and what film actually works as an NFT? This is where we kind of focus right now on the three C's, cool, culty, and collectible, or films with profile, Anthony Hopkins, right? If you have the Nebraska dairy farming movie that's a drama that goes to Sundance, really hard to see a world building 
kind of uh, NFT strategy with that. Not every film has to have a world building and gamifying type of thing, but if it's a rom-com or something, you know, we're looking at all different types, but if it's something that's global gamification, potential sequel spinoff, that's where you build a world and build a fan base that has meaning and value as you continue the process with your film or films. So the other, after the 11, then are those just different, just copies of the movie, like all the same versions that, you know, people just have like one unique version of like a Blu-ray and then that's it or? Yeah. So, so the one of one, and this is out there, this is actually really cool, is there is a version of the film, one copy that has different cast in the movie. And that's that person who owns that, which is, I believe, anonymous in, on OpenSea. His ver- he'll have multiple versions. So he'll have the final version. He'll have a version with different casts before we recast a bunch of the parts because it was just something we could do. One copy of that. Then the 10 copies, again, like the first one, you can shoot yourself into the film. They also get access to come to the set for part two and three, whether we're in Antarctica or Egypt or Jordan, which is where we're going with it. The 2500, you have randomly minted character cards, just like a baseball card collection. There's, there's only a certain amount of Anthony Hopkins cards and Christopher Shoot cards, and they're randomly minted when you purchase one of those 2500. And then that suddenly becomes a collectible item. And we're already seeing people in the secondary market trading those and collecting them. And then that gives us the, the ability as we build the world to potentially airdrop, go back to our community who was holding those NFTs. So it's almost like a really dedicated fan base who's there to support you. And it's, if you want to conquer Rotten Tomatoes and bad reviews, you give them an NFT that potentially has value because why, why would you write a bad review about something that you think is going to go up in value? It's the same way we think we can beat piracy. You're not going to beat it, but why would you pirate the NFT that you have when it's going to torpedo the value and therefore I can't sell it? So these are all things that we think are going to move in a positive direction in Hollywood. So this is your feature ter- directorial debut. And as far as, far as I understand, you, you weren't originally planning on directing. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about the transition, well, the addition, the additive task of bring, being the director in addition to producing and how that has influenced everything you're talking about prior to this, the NFT distribution strategy, the funding strategy, everything that goes with that. Yeah. You know, look, I think making the decision to direct this movie, I think it's weird because I also wear so many hats. I'm the director, I'm the producer, I'm the you know, partner in Enderby Entertainment, I'm the co-founder of Viewly. And so I can look at it from every angle. When I was trying to put this thing together with Cam, and it, look, it takes a team and I was never going to direct a film, whether it be this one or a conventional film without having the right team in place. And that's one thing I learned over the years producing movies. You need a good team because it's not about one person, let's be honest. And what was really interesting with this is using Zoom as our video village. I was able to have the editor with me at all times. Hawken Carlson, who lives in Sweden, you never have an editor there full time on any film. But he was on set. And so he was helping me with Cam Cannon to, yes, we had to adapt on the fly. And yes, we had, if we shot Japan and did a company move to Germany, it's, well, wait a second, if, if Riku travels and that wardrobe for, the, for our guy doesn't look the same, that's not going to cut. So having, having a support staff on set with me at all times was, was a huge bonus. And that's something comparing to producing. Obviously, if you're producing, you would say, okay, we don't need the editor here. It's fine. It's a cost that you wouldn't want to you know, deal with. But in this case, it was nice to separate the, the role that I had. And also when we did decide to go ahead with this and Peter Tomasis, my colleague said, you know, who's, who's going to direct it? And I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to. Someone needs to talk to the actors and someone has to have faith. And if I'm pitching them on how this film is going to work, I might as well discuss their character and how we're going to connect it. And then 
that got into the, the lack of chemistry and how that was going to play into it. But really, really interesting experience directing finally. So like after doing the NFT release, like now going with Lionsgate, like are they also going to do like a Blu-ray and a DVD release? Or is it like the NFT already is that, so they're just focusing on streaming and theatrical or whatever? No, no, I, I think it's, in fact, they will be doing a Blu-ray release and they, they should do and will be doing, I believe, every window that you would tr- traditionally do because that audience is not the same right now as the NFT audience, right? So you're still going to have people who like to collect Blu-rays. You're still going to have people that want to fill up their summer cottage with a Blu-ray DVD collection. And the bonus features that are in the Blu-rays, which are to be determined, those will potentially also be stuff that aren't in the NFTs because the NFTs are already minted. And I think the win that we're going for here as, as filmmaker and ho- uh, filmmakers in Hollywood in general is that you want Lionsgate to do what they're best at and do how they normally release movies and continue to do that. The NFT world is a whole different world. And, and we're three to five years away from mass adoption. And when that happens, there's probably more of an understanding with the studios and a bit more of a crossover with the release so that you wouldn't compartmentalize Viewly with Lionsgate. It would all be potentially in-house. But I think the thing is, is that the win is for them to do what they're best at and let the NFT world be a whole different play. I want to take all the momentum out of the room and ask you this silly question. Why does your Wikipedia entry say he is a father as well as a good man? It says that he is a father as well as a good man. I have a father. That's interesting. Yes. So I am a father. I have, I have two young children. So and I'll, and I'll take a good man. I, it always blows my mind who writes the Wikipedia. I don't understand that. It appears there sometimes. Just like IMDb, information appears there. It's, it's 80% accurate, but I'll, I'm a father. I'm a good man. So I'll take that one. That's so funny. I feel like there's so there's probably like very very few people in the world who write their own Wikipedia. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's hilarious. Just, it's like what people will thing. say. <laughs> How do you even access it? I mean, I feel like you get these random emails like, "Hey, I, I can get you into Wikipedia." Right. You know, it's like what is this a secret speakeasy or something? I'm not sure how that appears but yeah it appeared i don't know 15 years ago it's like there's your life story it's not fully accurate but here's rick duck i'll ask a better question (laughs) i'll I'll attempt (laughs) i have one ready but yeah you go please go (laughs) i mean clearly you are a true believer in the nft marketplace and and i love it 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 sucks me and it makes me start to convert as well what gave you the faith to even start exploring it what what convinced you this is was worth your time and energy yeah i mean I mean, look, our, our company DNA, and I think in my own philosophy is about breaking new ground and always thinking outside the box because we're in a business that's been around a hundred years. There's all kinds of opportunity to pivot and expand and try something new. Obviously streaming was a whole new, whole new world. I think the thing is too, is that I don't think we respect the fans enough. I think as filmmakers, you rely on them and we can talk about box office numbers failing and budgets coming down and struggling to get films financed. But has anyone really concern themselves with what the fans want. And I think you're seeing the streamers in their algorithms. I think obviously their Netflixes are being able to identify what the fans want. But I think, you know, whether it be the negative reviews and social media kind of becoming too much of a negative component for film releases, whether that's Web 2 and not Web 3. But I think an NFT release is something that lets us learn and work with them. It feels like it feels like when we're releasing an, an NFT and talking on Discord that your fans are around you. And we're talking to them, we're asking them stuff. That's the psychology of it, is that we can embed ourselves around them, listen, learn, and provide. And I think that we have not respected the fan base, I think, ever, you know, for years anyways. And this is a way for us to do that. I think it's 
is the future. And I think, I think you're seeing filmmakers coming at it from once you understand what an NFT means is making your film with a little bit of a different path and a different list of when you get the EPK list, you don't need the interview with, you know, you need the interview with the cast. You're also going to need 8K images of the wardrobe and the props because that's going to be an NFT strategy in the future. Any, any sound, cue, and pixel within the frame of your film is going to be something that will have a future. It's the bottom up. I mean, once you start going to NFT space, the sky's the limit. If you have a moderate released film, you're going to have people that you can always go and you know, present more NFT strategies. So there's, there's so many opportunities in the NFT space. Are you saying that you'd like, you know, make like a sound effect, an NFT and, and sell that as a one time, one for one item that someone can own the original, like, let's say it's a sci-fi movie and it's like the spaceship blasting off sound or whatever. Like, would that be, is that what you mean? Or is it like something else? Like part, part of it. I mean, part of it. I mean, imagine, imagine if you actually had a code embedded in that soundbite and you could use an app or something to, to de- decode that. You will always be able to, to go back. Like Zero Contact, we're going ahead on a podcast. And in the podcast, there'll be sound and, and audio elements that can trigger in part three that can rope back to an airdrop from NFT holders. You know, it's way down the rabbit hole, but it's all part of world building. But like the sound, the cue, the, and someone can decipher what that, was that a pen drop or was that the door opening to Finley Hearts, you know? The sky's the limit. And I think like we did a lot of ASMR and the audio, the sound engineering for zero contact. Again, you had to pull production value at every turn because the way we shot the movie. So a ton of work was done in the sound mix. And, you know, you hear the, that's obviously all by design because that is that that's the internet coming through on the image, but you don't hear that pop up. But if you actually deciphered what an actual something traveling down the internet sounds like, it's probably that, right? So, so you just have to look at every pixel. Everything you hear is possible to take it elsewhere. I think that's how you get a look at it. Just, just curious. I know you kind of floated like all that. You know, your NFTs have have made a certain amount of money, but can you just tell us, like, for, like very clearly, like you know, having done this process, what what was the financial outcome? Like, did you net like a million dollars, like five hundred thousand less? Like, what was the financial? result of this this experiment yeah so, so we're still selling and there's still a marketing plan that's going into effect when it's all said and done in the primary market sales will be just about a million bucks and that's public wow. knowledge. so so that's you know on a film like this i mean again that's as filmmakers trying to find your way in the finance plan you know that actually can green light other films i know going into our next films with whether it be a 20 million dollar film i know that there's a 20 to 30% in your finance plan that we can recover on an NFT strategy. Therefore, you could finance it potentially with equity and be more secure. Is there like a boundary to fan engagement that you have in your mind? Like, is there kind of like a, a wall that you've set forth? What What's next in terms of fan engagement? Uh, do you feel that they could influence narrative, they could influence casting decisions? Or is that are those really outside of the NFT conversation right now? Well, I could say one word. I'm not sure how much time we have, but the metaverse is a whole other conversation we can talk about. But in terms of fan engagement, you're seeing a lot of the NFT strategies out there. And again, this is some discussions we had at Can is that you can invest in an NFT and you're, you're seeing pre-buys by the NFT and you can name a character and you can play a part. A lot of that stuff is, is wonderful. And a lot of that is, is part of the future. But at the same time, if it's really crowdfunding and Indiegogo type of environment and psychology to it, 
that doesn't really help us when we're trying to do deals with Marvel and release studio movies to have the corporate heads of these studios actually understand that the future is here and not be dismissed as the indie players crowdfunding. So with Viewly, we're not that. We are separated. And as a filmmaker, you know, we want to carefully walk that line. Engage the fans when there's a completed film. Viewly releases finished films. You know, I think a lot of those are, are very admirable, but I think you have to be careful to not discredit what the future holds. And I think that's, uh, yeah, the metaverse is part of that. Was there any like uh, extra costs, you know, involved with creating all these extra NFT bonuses? Like, did you have an NFT budget for doing all the the extra parts of it to get like, you know, have the ability to, to film somebody to put them into the movie? Like have all these different, the different casts come in for the different versions of the film? Like, or was it all just a time cost and no actual dollar amount associated? No, that, that's a great question. These are all what you you know include in your marketing budget. These were your EPK day or your, or your press day, you know, I like guess days like today. But you would have like to create the making of. Yeah, that was a, I think it was a thirty minute making of that required an editor doing the work and that required deliverables to deliver to to mint as well as NFTs and to deliver you know any of the bonus features. Yeah, it was part of your marketing budget. We did a whole thing with the interviews that cost a location fee. And that was done when you know there wasn't COVID restrictions. So yeah, these are marketing costs that you would have in your budget of a film. I have a follow-up question really quick. I'm sorry, Liz. But like, so when you sell the movie through, you know, Viewly, like as an NFT, like when you get the money back, like are there any like fees associated? Like do you have to pay out to anybody or is it all direct to the filmmaker? And like, how does that, 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 that payment process and collection of fees work? Yeah. So this is where people get caught up in, in smart contracts, right? People assume that it's on the blockchain in a smart contract and it'll be slowly dispersed. I'll tell you the future is everyone is paid in crypto and everything's on the blockchain. And this is where distributors, when they collect, they're going to have to give it to the blockchain immediately. And this is a whole other machine we'll have to deal with. But imagine a day where you go into the theater and you buy your ticket in a, in a, in a crypto sense on a smart contract. And it shows up, ding, and I'm a, one of the stars of the movie, right? And that the $20 ticket, immediately I get seven cents. Now, you turn your notifications off because you could have a million probably coming in. This is, this is very simple. This is like selling a TV license. So when we sell the NFTs on Viewly, they come in just like it's all A, transparent because you can see how many are sold on a blockchain. And then from there, those funds get transferred to the rights holder, just like any other distributor to rights holder kind of scenario. So, and then from there, they, if they have a CAMA collection account management agreement, that would go to Freeway or Vintage or whoever you use, and that would go into the waterfall. And they're going to have to now define, well, this NFT play is now in the CAMA, but it's all, if you know CAMA, I mean, that's a predetermined waterfall that everyone who's a participant is privy to that distribution structure. So it will just go in like a collection out of the Italian distribution deal. There will be a future where it's all on a smart contract, but now it's just coming in like a TV license or in a you know, foreign distribution deal. Is this a world right now where you can carve out NFT window for yourself rather than giving it over to Lionsgate? Great question. Yes. Yes. That is a lot of the conversations we're having. You're seeing a lot of talent deals where they're trying to insert NFT language or you know, distribution deals where they're the language normally is, you know, all rights now known in the universe or whatever the de- definition is there. Well, guess what? Blockchain NFTs is actually known and it, yes, it's in the universe. So we are talking to, you know, fellow producers that you should be 
carving those out. Or it should be if a distributor offers you a certain price point and they get us involved, I would say, well, you should ask for more because I bet your film could do X as an NFT strategy. So I think that's where maybe there's a bit of disruption going on that we're causing, but we're trying to get the message out that you shouldn't relinquish the NFT rights on, on most films. So, you know, let's say like I got a movie coming out in September, right? And like, you know, I, I haven't done any NFT strategy or anything like that, but I have a bunch of bonus features. I have a bunch of extra content. I have all this stuff on my hard drive that, you know, could be utilized, you know, you know, as a part of an NFT campaign. Like, what is the cost for me to go to, to Viewly and to just start doing this? Like, do I, is it a split? Do I, do I split some of the, 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 the earnings with Viewly? Like, do I have to pay a fee? Like, what's the process? Yeah. So, well, first of all, congrats on your film. Thank you. So I, I think, and obviously you have an email, we should talk about that. But the thing is, is that it's all negotiable. We're, we're a distribution company, right? So you can talk about rev share like Tubi. There's NGs to be had for the right films. Obviously, some of the higher profile stuff that's going to take that because also they don't want to necessarily take the risk because there's a lack of understanding. So it's all negotiable like any distribution deal. In terms of what elements you would have. What we do is we look at the films, the marketing department looks at it. And then from there, we kind of ideate around, well, this utility could work and this could work. And we'd say, you know, do you have a future that you're thinking of? Is there a sequel? Maybe, maybe we can play. And oh, again, you have this brainstorm session with the marketing team when we decide to acquire a film. I think that's, that's usually the process. Interesting. Let, let, me, let me just add, because that's where I was going with this, is that it, it goes back to when Twitter started and you get a Twitter and it's like, well, uh, I don't know. What, what do I need to type? What, what am I? I'm just getting a coffee. Do I need to say, getting a coffee, having a good day? Hope you <laughs> that was the process with Twitter. You know, We didn't understand what the hell we had to tweet. And I think now it's like, okay, I have a, I have a movie. We did a making of, but what, what can I NFT? And again, sky's the limit. Here's a classic example. An example with a classic. Casablanca. Right. So imagine you have Casablanca as an NFT. Now, the audience for Casablanca, you wouldn't think is the NFT audience, but there's the, let's call that the Warhol of art collections. Right. So Casablanca, now you can get it as NFT. What do you get with it? Well, maybe you get a copy of the original script that's digitized that no one's ever seen or the call sheet. But what if you had 11 second film strip that may not have been processed or it was, but it obviously would never be in collectibles because it's roll camera and Bogart puts a cigarette out and says, all right, see you guys later. And action. That 11 seconds is useless, you would think, on a bonus DVD feature, even back then, or Laserdisc or whatever it was, even in the 70s and 80s. But in the NFT world, now you get to see and hear Bogart that no one's ever seen. That is cool. And that is collectible. And that has cult status. And that is an NFT. I'd pay for that. Right? Totally. I would. Citizen Kane. I mean, you, you list them out. I mean, there's, there's high profile things that are cool. I remember my question now. So basically, it's about like where it goes. So you talked about the metaverse. Like, is this just now available to anyone on the metaverse, like as an NFT, or is it just through the Viewly platform? Like, how are people purchasing the NFTs that you are creating? So, so you can go to Viewly, you can buy them in crypto, or you can buy them with a credit card. And that was key credit card because we're not a mass adoption, right? So, right now, I think we're at the stage of, of Netflix when Netflix was still sending DVDs and the parents were watching the DVDs. But the kids in the house were working on this new streaming platform that they could watch and say, mom, dad, stop getting the DVDs. That's kind of where we are, I think, right? Once mass adoption sets in, I think it'll be much easier and you won't, it won't all be 
credit card and one I'll be crypto. But in order to engage in that process, you need to take credit card. But also in the crypto space, it can't just be an open seat because then you have KYC and AML policies, which is why Viewly takes payment via Coinbase that does all of that betting for you. So you can still pay in crypto, but got to use your Coinbase wallet. Interesting. You've already given a lot of examples, but I'm going to press you for lower budget ones in the sense of like, we work with, we're all working on both filmmakers. We would say the audience of this show is probably a lot of emerging filmmakers. And I would say most likely in the micro budget space, they don't get to work with Anthony Hopkins, by the way. Congratulations. It's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Is there a lot of these filmmakers don't get to have a unit photographer on set? They don't prioritize these things in their budget, right? Could you offer an alternative option for those who feel a little strapped for resources to still participate in this in this activity? Yeah, so if, I think if you're going to make your micro budget film, you know, you look at it like, hey, make a good film, and I can talk about like the film that you should make. Uh, and I'll, give, I'll give a couple of bits there. Is that you know, if you're going to make a micro budget film, it's got to be high concept. Don't make that horror movie in a box. Don't make kids struggling out in the woods. If you <laughs> can think of your marketing materials before you've made the film, like, oh, it's going to be like Friday the 13th, then a distributor is going to think the same way and go, we've seen that a hundred times. We don't want to pick it up. And therefore you struggle with distribution. If you can make Ex Machina for a micro budget, high concept, unique, and yet the dangerous word I hate to use is contained, because that also can be a turnoff. Don't say contained thriller. High concept, contained thriller, possibly, right? <laughs> but, but I think you got to think international. And that is where zero contact comes in, is that we set out to say, well, it's got to be international because that's going to tick the box on 14 countries that a, streaming, a streamer or whoever distributor, worldwide distributor for your movie, it's going to work for them. It's not the Idaho dairy farming script, right? So if you're trying to make a low-budget movie, it's got to be international. And once you have this international component, and if it's the Idaho dairy farmer, but they actually go to Italy for a summer vacation before going back to run the farm, but they get caught up in a drug cartel and they get smuggled to Albania and they got to find their way back through Montenegro and the Bay of Kotor and boom, they end up back in Idaho. There's your, there's your international film that still could be done with two actors on a train and a camera. So that is something that you know gives you more roads to victory. In terms of how do you make films like that as an NFT, or even if you're doing your micro-budget film, it still has to have success. It still has to have profile. It still has to be a good film. You can't just, you know, we can release a film that doesn't have profile or the, the three C's, but you better have 2 million marketing because you still need to drive traffic to it. If you put it up on OpenSea, which we obviously wouldn't do, it'd be on Viewly, you still got to get eyeballs. That's an aggregator. That's eBay of NFTs, right? So you still need marketing dollars. Now, how to NFT your movie in the hopes that, or, or curate the collectibles, right? When you're making your film, Anything is available. Like you, need, you don't need a unit publicist or a unit photographer, I should say. You know, keep all your wardrobe, keep all your props. If the film catches fire and it's Napoleon Dynamite, you know it. Then all of your... It, it, now we're going to have storage sheds full of stuff. I can see where this is going. But you'll have all of these items that you can go back to with the Casablanca effect, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, again, I don't think people should overthink when you're trying to make your $500,000 movie as to, I'm going to have an NFT future. Unless you have, you know, uh, the light, you know, lightsaber, something that was in Star Wars that somebody owns and it was in the movie and that becomes, it's a bad idea. But, you know, don't overthink the NFT strategy with your micro budget film. Get Uncle Joe to finance the film for 500 grand and just know that there's some way somehow that you're probably going to have an NFT future to help Uncle Joe get some of his money back. Probably the best way to put it. And, and then, so you're saying you sell the NFTs just for Viewly, but like once it's purchased, like would someone take it to OpenSea and like, 
post it there to like resell it potentially? Is that like one of the things that the potentials with NFTs or like where? That's called bridging. So, so that, that's in the future, but it wouldn't make a lot of sense for us to allow people to bridge to OpenSea. And then it's kind of out there in the sphere and you're going to see, you know, at some point there'll be consolidations of blockchains and then you have, you know, your films are out in the, in the solar system somewhere, your NFTs, I should say, and you have to call them home again. This is kind of how it feels like. But right now we're focused on buying and selling on Viewly and the secondary market. The marketplace is on Viewly and that's where you, you know, sell your films there as well and buy and collect them in your digital wallet. So for my real question, I've been hearing people tell me for, for months now, like NFT is the future of film, filmmaking and NFTs, like, oh, it's all going to be NFTs in the future. And like what you've just described to us over the last 40 minutes is like this, this kind of co- collaboration where like NFT becomes part of the distribution process, but isn't necessarily taking over all of distribution. But the question to you is like, is that the future? Like, is NFT going to be the way to dis- distribute movies wholly in 20 years? Or is it always going to be like kind of this, this is a part of the process? Well, as a filmmaker, I hope theaters never go away. I still love that process of going to a theater. I think you're going to see other things that will come after NFTs and blockchain. And I think all of those revenue streams will exist. It'll be 50 years before somebody stops buying a DVD, probably. Maybe not. VHS has went down faster than that. But I think, <laughs> I think the reality is you have to look at it is that where do we go with the metaverse? And you know, I think, for example, if you... Some of the NFTs of the future... Let me back up. Some distributors are looking at an NFT strategy as part of their P&A campaign. It's not about making money off. It's about getting the market exposure. And whether you're Marvel or something that releases an NFT, that would play into their $100, $200 million P&A campaign. It's just another marketing tool. Whereas some of the smaller distributors who rely on those TV licenses and downstream revenue for them, they they want the 50, 100 grand that could be made. They want the 500,000 that could be made. And that's a real thing. So you're seeing really two different business models right now that are both equally as effective. I think if you talk about the metaverse, where I see that going, and there's stuff that we're working on already, is that you can be a theater owner in the metaverse. And if you're a theater owner, how do you get films to screen on the weekend? You cut a deal with an exhibitor, and now you have an NFT that screens at 7 to 9 on Friday and Saturday. And after 100 screenings, it self-destructs. That, that is something that's something we're working on, right? And that's where the metaverse is still in its infancy. And there'll be multiple, there'll be hundreds of thousands, millions of metaverses in the end. Right, but you're going to go to your metaverse because you live in your neighborhood, and you're going to go down to the local theater because this, you know, that theater is playing that movie, and I want to see it before it self-destructs. Maybe, maybe you engage in that community and you have a version of the NFT, but you want to see it in the metaverse with your friends sitting next to you in some crazy avatar. That that is something that will exist as well, uh, and I think you're going to see viewly movie theaters in the metaverse. We're exploring that. It's public knowledge, you know. And, and you'll have the mom and pa theaters type of vibe in there as well. That again, that would buy the NFT, that's the exhibition NFT, right? And then they would get limited screenings. And so like, there are so many opportunities and you can go deep down the rabbit hole and never get out. But there are so many opportunities for filmmakers, I think, moving forward. I think we need to jump to our final questions. These are more like personal, more introspective. By the way, I think you just like melted our minds. I just want to acknowledge that. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's the first film you ever made as a producer or as a director, or as a co-writer, whatever it is? What's the first film you ever made, took ownership of, and how do you feel about it now? You know, there's a film. I should just say I, I came up through the ranks in physical production as a location manager. And I got to work on a lot of the big films as a location manager. And you could really see that 
if they had an $8 million budget in your department, I could make eight movies for that pretty much nowadays. But the first <laughs> film I really took ownership of that I, I'm really proud of is a film called The Haunting at Silver Falls, which was in the era of doing micro-budget horror films that you could sell internationally. And it was a real crush of business going on. Two years later, they stopped through the European system. You couldn't really make a lot of money off these small horror films. But we had a great little cast. It, it was a, a film that Cam Cannon is associated with as well. Cam and I have known each other almost 20 years. But it's this little horror film that we shot in Oregon that was, I don't think anyone could guess the budget of that film, but it, it looked pretty good. And I was so proud of it. And that was really the first jump like off of like, I'm fully responsible if somebody gets killed on the set. So you really take that seriously. So what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Hmm, that's a good question. I'll take one from my business partner, Dan Petrie Jr., who his father gave him that one. And I always thought it was smart. And he, and he said, uh, when Dan Jr. asked him, he said, Danny, get a flu shot. And I always thought that's probably different in today's world. Get your COVID shot. But <laughs> I, I think it's uh, still valid for sure. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm afraid to ask. What's the worst filmmaking <laughs> advice you've ever received? I mean, I would want to say get a film bond because that's a whole world that it's not something we fully believe in per se. But, you know, I, I think work with the right people, go with the model, life's too short. You know, bet the people you're going to work with, whether it be financiers and filmmakers, because once you actually make a film, you have got married and you have birthed a child and you probably separate at some point. They'll be cordial, but you're going to separate. The kid needs to go to college. The kid's going to have kids. You're going to have grandkids and someone needs to deal with those grandkids until you're gone. That's a film. And that's what people don't realize, right? It's like, I'm an indie film, like I'm going to make a film, but do you realize you got to deliver the movie and you got to license it around the world to make back Uncle Joe's money? And after 10 years, you got to relicense it because you're still chasing your money back or there's money on the table. And in 25 years, your domestic deal... Is, comes up and someone's got to deal with that. Someone's going to file taxes. People don't realize that process of the filmmaking. So know who you're going to work with, get to know them well, because you're always going to have them on, on your phone. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? I think I really hope we can inspire a lot of kids to follow in his footsteps. I, I want to personally, I think there's, you know, part of this film is that it's, you want to demystify Hollywood a little bit and let people understand the process. So if you're a kid and Kazakhstan or Uruguay or some foreign country with the goal, I'm going to be a filmmaker. Look at Brazil. I mean, Brazil culture, it's my understanding. They, they grew up with American cinema primarily in Brazil. It's all they had back then. And I just heard the story in Cam. And if you realize that the world is not as big as you think it is, don't be afraid of that. And so you look at Zero Contact, we had people from all over the world remotely. So if you're trying to start out as a filmmaker in, in rural Kazakhstan or Mongolia, and you have an internet connection and you need, you wrote a scene and the scene is tribesmen in the Amazon river or something. You can reach out to a filmmaker in that, some kind of collective in that country and say, can you get this shot for me? And now you put that scene in and then I do something similar in Mongolia and Uruguay. And now I'm a filmmaker in, in Kazakhstan or, or wherever I am. And I've just made, I've just made this international movie remotely and that becomes inspiring. And that becomes something that actually probably gets distribution, especially with so many distributors out there. And you've just launched your career, not needing work visas and then the cash to make it to Hollywood. And I think that is something, A, doable. That's inspiring. And I'd love to see a kid like that succeed. And I think, I think it's possible. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself at an earlier age? Be patient. You know, I think, I think it takes time. I think 
I've encountered so many colleagues that, you know, you have to reset, I think, what you're taught of the filmmaking process, or maybe you come up guns a blazing, I'm going to be an actor, I'm going to be a director. But I don't know how many of those directors that went to film school with a $100,000 student loan who were PAs for me when I was a location manager. And, and then you climb the ranks that way. And, and I think you realize that I'd like to know the analysis of the actual length of a career that most filmmakers are in it for. Is it, is it 10 years? Like before they, this isn't going to work for me and they go off, go back to the farm or something. Is that you got to be patient. You got to put your time in. You got you to gotta learn as much as you can. And nowadays you could you know, listen to podcasts and watch YouTube videos, but you got to keep learning and don't rush it. Back when I was starting out, it was like, I'm going to rush in. I'm going to break in and meet the right person. And then you realize, oh, I, I got a 20 hour day I got to do on set today as a locations guy picking up plywood. So I think the thing is you got to be patient and too many people are trying to rush it. Your time will come, put the work in. Yeah. Touche. That's definitely my experience too. <laughs> Last question, is making movies hard? Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I think it's logistics beyond logistics. And I think, again, if you... You look at what we did on Zero Contact 2 and 3. We shot in Antarctica. That's never been done. And I think that's also in our DNA as well, is that thinking outside the box and trying to create cool things because we are in a cool business. You might as well make things exciting, but you got to put the time in logistics, right? People say, well, why don't you shoot in Montana or Alaska? And I'll say, well, it's pretty simple. A lot of people do that for Antarctica, but guess what? There are no trees in Antarctica. Watch the thing. It opens with trees and helicopters, which are two things not in Antarctica. But I think what you realize, if you put the time in, put the work in, not to go back to the last question, but you realize that it's actually not much more expensive to shoot in Antarctica. We can flip cars over on the Giza Plateau in Egypt, and we don't need green screen if you just put the right work in and you go through the process. You know, So look, we're, we're in an interesting, a fun business. You got to make, make life interesting. And so I think putting work in, once you do it, films are always complicated, but you can you can learn very quickly. They can uh, you know, make it easier for you if you figure it out in time. Thank you for being on our show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Anytime. How can people best support you? Like what we use this as a call to action for you and your film. Yeah. So the movie comes out Friday with Lionsgate. I think it's a uh, limited theatrical across the country. VOD. Check it out on Apple TV, Amazon, I believe. It's obviously on Viewly. There's still some left to get if you want it on there. This is going to be exciting on Friday when it comes out to the masses to see this film that was very ambitious that we pulled it off. You can follow us on social as well. Uh, Rick Dugdale on social, Enderby Entertainment on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff as well. Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Rick? I remember pretending to understand everything he was saying because I didn't want to appear uncool in Rick Dugdale's eyes. <laughs> Like there are moments where I just was not catching up at all and I didn't want to slow the momentum down and I didn't want to be like, how does that work? Or what do you mean by that phrase? And I think at some point I say that he melted our minds. And I, I, I love talking to people in tech and innovative industries. I just think it's so exciting. I had this teammate back at Sundance. Her name is Jess Fuselet. And she was like a former programmer. And she just loved talking to tech people. And she'd let me tag along. And it's always mind blowing. And it like gives you like a weird high. I don't know if you felt that way too, where you're like, think of all the potential. I could do this. I could do this. I could do this. Like all conversations with people in tech in film do that to me. But in terms of practical application, I'm still confounded by it all. 
And apparently too sheepish, <laughs> too sheepish to really get under the hood of it. How did you feel? What were your thoughts? Well, I, I felt like I finally got to the answer to my question about why it, is NFT the future of filmmaking? And, you know, it seems like the real answer is it isn't the future of filmmaking. It's going to be the future, like in collaboration or a compartment of distribution with filmmaking is really the answer to the, to, to that, you know, thought or that explanation that you see all over Twitter and Facebook where people are like, NFTs, the future of filmmaking. It's like, uh, don't get all ahead of yourself there, people. It's very cool. I mean, and, and to be honest, I mean, he made a million dollars, um, you know, releasing his film as an NFT, you know, but he, uh, a couple of things, like he's an expert in the field for one, and he planned it very intentionally from the beginning to include an NFT release. So I feel like those are like really important aspects of it. It does sound like you can capitalize on this if you were a person who ran a crowdfunding campaign in a very anal way, who like created a lot of extra assets and bonus features and things to give to your to your fan base. There's a way you can incorporate that incorporate that fe- that footage and that stuff that's on your hard drive into an NFT release that which I thought was really interesting. And like I probably have enough stuff where I could do an NFT release for my movie. Whether it'll be profitable or not, that is unknown because I mean, part of his whole international release plan was to, to be exciting for the NFT market because it's not just an American thing, it's a worldwide thing. So like he specifically shot a movie in multiple countries with different actors from different parts of the world in order to uh, like appeal to more people and to make it something that could like spark on an, an international level. And I think that was all really, really interesting components to the whole NFT release platform and the release plan, you know? And and it was kind of nice to be like, oh yeah, so he is releasing it through an NFT, but it's also going to have a traditional release as well. So it's like, I think those two things together, it sort of just kind of made everything make sense to me. So it was sort of, for me, it was like a big enlightening conversation. So like I kind of understood like where this fits in the place and how like these this NFT plan is probably better suited for things that do have a viral or a cultish fan base to them in the first place. So like horror films, science fiction films, action films, maybe even comedy films. But like, I'm just saying a bunch of genres. So I feel like this probably doesn't work as well for dramas, you know, right. but for genre-based thing, movies, I think this is like a really, really great way that you could like create like a whole new kind of collectible and like exclusive side to your, you know, to your whole release plan for your film. No, I 100% agree. And I do think there's potential. And and I I did understand 75% of what Rick Dugdale was saying. So I got enough to like, (laughs) that I have stuff to chew on, you know, Uh, my mind grapes have something I can't mix these metaphors. Mind grapes can't chew. But there's something (laughs) there (laughs) that I have, you know, I understand some of it. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if the content I make is the same captivating content that would empower an NFT release. But when he was talking about the Humphrey Bogart thing, when he was saying like, wouldn't it be so cool to see the foot, to essentially see, I don't care about ownership. I'd want to see the footage of Humphrey Bogart, you know, in between takes when someone yells cut like that would be really cool. My, I'm a big Humphrey Bogart fan. My car was named Humphrey when I was in high school. Mm. And I get that. But in terms of like an indie film that I've never heard of that has based off of no IP. Yeah, unless the concept is incredibly compelling, I still think it's an uphill climb to convince people who are not already in the Web 3.0 space to buy in. So, right. But it's exciting. And I love anything that has, that will give filmmakers money. So if this gives filmmakers money, like, yes. 
supportive. 100%. And I just want to say for the record, I'm not claiming to understand everything Rick Duckdale said. <laughs> I just understood enough to get yeah. to my understanding of what the NFT release thing, you know, how it should be or could be used. But yeah, I mean, to that point, like it, maybe it isn't necessarily only genre. Maybe if you have like a celebrity, like in your drama movie, it's like, oh, that little, you know, whatever, 30 seconds of, um, you know, your, you know, Nicole Kidman, like preparing herself to do her take if she does something interesting or she's just like, you know, centering, whatever, like that could be something that you could, you know, release as an NFT for your yeah. movie. But I think to your point, it can't be, un it can't be just like an obscure original like drama with no like piece to, to latch on to. But I do think that like, it's not necessarily about like trying to bring in your audience into the web point three, you know, space. It's more like the people are already in that space. It's like, you're, you're after those people who are like already yeah. buying NFTs who are already into that sort of thing. Or potentially like super fans, if you had fans, like let's imagine that we were filmmakers with fans, then <laughs> our fans would go to, you know, the, this the Viewly, for instance, and like, you know, like buy the NFT version of our next movie because they want to be the first to have it. They want to have the special content. They want to have everything and then they want to do with it what they will, either hold on to it or yeah. sell it or whatever, you know, if they like, Liz is going to be the, the, you know, Academy Award winning filmmaker one day, like I'm going to buy her movie and have the one of one copy of, you know, witchy or whatever. It's like, then yeah. they would have that and, and it would be worth something to them, you know, or to other people, you know, so... I don't know. It's, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. I think it's a, something to keep an eye on for sure. I was know? just thinking like, what would get me involved, right? Like it would be Humphrey Bogart. It would be Mike Flanagan. And then it would be like <laughs> David Lynch. It would be in those. And I would say they all kind of have like what you're talking about. There's something kind of magical about these worlds. Like I know Humphrey Bogart may not be, but Humphrey Bogart's cool factor transcends time and space. Like he's just so cool. <laughs> And I think that's magical. I think so. Yeah. So those examples help yeah. help me get it a little bit more. But this week, we also have something else to talk about, which is the news. We have an article from Screen Rant about the stunts in Top Gun 2, which took down... Top Gun 2 just took down Pirates of the Caribbean at World End and had the biggest Memorial Day box office numbers to date at $156 million. That is amazing. And, and I read also that it's like... Tom Cruise's biggest box office opening. Yeah, by like far, like yeah. like crazy, which I did not, I would not expect. I thought it's he would a have already very had big deal. an over a hundred million dollar weekend, but I guess that's just not the kind of movies he made or makes or whatever. Very surprising. Okay, well, so the article goes into the stunts that they were able to pull off, the fact that the film doesn't use any green screen. They all go through this crazy training program that Tom Cruise put together. And every actor experienced over eight Gs in an F-18. Ulrich, what did you, what was your takeaway from this article? Well, having seen the movie and read many other articles about this and watched some behind the scenes thing, I think this is really fascinating. And it's, it's kind of amazing, like what these actors did to get their bodies ready to do this. Because I was reading about it and like, apparently in the original Top Gun, like everybody, they put them in the plane and immediately they all vomited, including Tom Cruise, you know? And so they were like, well, we can't actually do this with the actors. Like we just have to put them on a gimbal and then we'll like, you know, we'll fake it or whatever. But for this, and then we'll just use the real photography that we shoot with, like without the actors, blah, blah, blah. But for this one, they're like, no, we're going to really do it for real. We're going to do it the right way. And in order to do that, like Tom Cruise, I guess he knows what you need to do. So it's like, I was watching this footage. They're like running underwater. They're like doing all this crazy, like, you know, just different like uh, training. And 
a lot of the actors said it was the hardest thing they ever did in their entire life, like going through this training program, you know, and it's just fun to like kind of hear about the experience and like hear what it was like for them and how like the thing that was kind of funny, it was like they, they would be in this little, this thing called the Bronco, which is like a top, like a, like a cockpit that's like on the ground that like simulates everything that you experience, like, you know, in a plane. And Tom Cruise would be like on the monitor, like right outside, like coaching them, watching them or whatever. And then like having them, you know, hear from Tom Cruise, like, oh, that wasn't good enough. Or you didn't, you know, sell out enough here or whatever. I was like, wow, that's really interesting that like Tom Cruise is like doing that where it's not like, you know, the director <laughs> who would normally be the person to be like giving that kind of guidance. But I mean, obviously I'm sure he did too, but it was just like, it was kind of funny that like Tom Cruise is like so hands-on that he's the one to like, you know, give these actors their training and that like they really seem to appreciate it. But I mean, I guess if I was an actor and Tom Cruise was guiding me, like I would be pretty excited to be guided by Tom Cruise. So, Or like, what are you going to say? You're going to, what are you going to say? Anything negative about Tom Cruise who like is terrifying and like incredibly <laughs> intense and powerful. Like I would just be like, yeah, he was great. I loved everything he did. He's the wonderful. Yeah, my first in- reaction to this was like, why? Why? Why put all these actors through all of this? Because it seems excessive. It seems expensive. It seems dangerous. And then I know, understand that there's a level of reality that Tom Cruise is looking for, or maybe not Tom Cruise, the production team, like you were mentioning, it's really hard to figure out the boundaries of those two things. But like, <laughs> if you really want reality, it's like, well, that's hilarious. Because I, mean, I was just reading about Kelly McGillis, who, you know, is the romantic lead in the first movie. And I mean, I don't think anyone explicitly told her, but she said that they never reached out to her because she was too like old and fat, I think were the words that she used. And it's like, well, that's reality. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, what kind of reality are you after Tom Cruise and Top Gun 2? You're after just like a certain vulnerability of the danger. But you're <laughs> like, I don't know. I think you can act that things are scary. I think you could act that you're pushing the bounds of physics. I think actors are tremendously talented. And I don't think you have to go to these extremes and put anyone anyone's life in danger in order to achieve this quote unquote reality that they're after. So I don't get it. Just wait till you see the movie. You're like, it's totally worth it. Is it totally worth it? Ari? It's Am I total totally du- I'm worth a dunce it. right now. Great, great. I mean, if you look at the way that Tom Cruise, when he, there's one sequence, especially in the movie where he's like going, he's like filling all the G's or whatever. <laughs> and the, the way that he breathes, because you have to breathe a certain way when you're, when you're at that velocity and the way that the whole thing is done, it just feels like you're there in the cockpit, you know, that you're like, a, okay. you're, that this is actually happening, that it's not like all just, you know, whatever, smoke and mirrors, which is, which I mean, a lot of it is happening, but it's definitely not happening the way that the movie shows it happening, right? Because like a lot of that stuff is like pretty much impossible, you know, but like they're, but they're actually doing, you know, a lot of the flying in order to like merge the two together into one thing. So, you know, one part of the movie, he hits 10 G's and no one's hitting 10 G's in this movie, you know, but but you hit eight, you know, and so eight's pretty fucking crazy, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. Anyways, but my, my point is like you watch that movie and you watch like, I don't know, like what's a movie that has planes in it? Like uh, Independence Day two or something, right? You know, it's like, it's not the same. It's like, it's just like, it's just, you can tell it's not real. You can tell that it's just, you know, CGI little pew pew, flying, flying. You know, it's like when you actually see planes flying, you're actually seeing shots of planes from another plane in the air doing this. It's like that, you can't fake that. And it, and, and if, and you feel it, you know, and it makes, 
it's a special thing. It's really a special thing, you know? And so I think like the fact that they took the lengths to make that thing special, the way it, which is what Tom Cruise does with everything. Like he always goes the length does to show stunts. you something that you haven't seen, yeah. you know, you like, like the things that he's done, like you're never going to see anyone do that again. Like, unless you hire a robot. <laughs> you know? it's just like, well, I like no that. Really I... Running down the building in Dubai. <laughs> it's like, no, it's insane. <laughs> I appreciate that dedication. And I, I like spectacle. This is, you know, I don't mean to be a party pooper with regard to spectacle. Like I do enjoy those type of movies. It's, it's just to like, to, to what end, I guess is, is what I'm trying to figure out. And I think there is a part of me that's like, well, if you do have the resources and you have the commitment, everyone knows the risks, they're buying in, you're being compensated properly. And this is a film with such tremendous resources. Like, why not is the other part of me. The other part of me is like, well, I just don't want this happening on an indie film where like there's not oversight, <laughs> there's not the safety The you know, the presumption is that they won't have the resources to make it as to do it as thoroughly regulated as I think this film was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you have to. I mean, like I, I read somewhere like you have to have the money to back it up. I, I read on some article. It was like, I think they paid the the, the Navy like $11,000 a day to make the movie. It was... <laughs> It was a ridiculous amount of money to like get the planes in the air and and do what they did every day on on the film. So it's like that is just like yeah, no indie film can do that. That's like no. that's like a lot of whole movies budgets right there. But yeah, the, the last thing I'll say is like I don't know. Have you seen the new Mission Impossible trailer? Did you watch that yet? I didn't watch the trailer. No, I mean I've seen the movies. Um, um, yeah, well the new one that just cut just just came out. It got we got to see the trailer with Top Gun. It's like he does a stunt where he takes a motorcycle and he drives the motorcycle off a cliff and he's got a parachute on his back and then he fucking, you know, pulls a parachute. Apparently they shot that mo- that stunt as the very first thing in the movie in order because like if he killed himself, there would be no movie. If he died doing it, there would be no movie. And so it's like so dangerous. They're like, all right, well, let's just do this first and see if it works. you know. And of course, big Tom Cruise. It did, but like, I mean, no other actors doing that. No one actor risking their lives to make movies like, like that. It's like, it's, it's, it's like, it's insane. But on the other hand, it's like incredible. It's like incredibly insane. And it's amazing that he'll do that, you know? No one should risk their life for a movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm drawing well, a line in the, the sands. Let's see if we can get Tom Cruise on the show to back, back yeah. up his position. Tom Cruise and I would not get along. So it's, <laughs> it's okay. I'm sure he would have like the best like explanation for you that like yeah. you would not be able to argue he would like put it in some way where yeah. it's just like you know because he is like one of the most charismatic people oh i wouldn't even try i wouldn't even know what to say to him <laughs> and then i would just like afterwards just like be be you know upset at myself for not saying all the cool things i had inside my mind you know to say to tom cruise but no, no he would win every conversation every time I, if i met tom cruise i would just be like thank you sir appreciate <laughs> everything that you've done for my for me as a, a filmmaking audience or a film audience like i've loved every moment of what you've done thank you sir that's what i would, I say. would say do another do jerry Maguire again just do jerry Maguire. Over <laughs> do jerry Maguire too i love jerry Maguire. i just uh, love it if you could just do jerry Maguire over and over again i'd be happy that's so i'm funny. different it's fine <laughs> Anyway, so we have a, a listener question this week from longtime listener Earl Martin. Earl writes, Dear Liz and Ulrich, someday I'm going to support you guys on Patreon because you deserve it. 
I am just not in a position right now and that sucks. Well, Earl, no worries. Thank you so much for the for the thought and for the 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 care cuz we really care that you care. And yeah, thank you. Each week I look forward to the podcast. I've listened for a long time now and it's been fun to watch you both grow into the, your podcast skin. I didn't know I had a podcast skin, but that's cool. You really have. You guys are pros. Well, you know that I usually shoot horror films, but I haven't shot anything substantial since COVID began until two weeks ago. Music Bed had a challenge and I bit the bullet and shot a seven minute short that is totally different than anything I've ever done. It's a film that presents a pitch. What you probably don't know is that two years ago, I started and have been building my I'm a Little Alien platform, which includes my Compassion Makes a Difference mantra and the Scallywag mission. Prior to filmmaking, I was in public speaking and and working with the youth. At this time in my life, I just want to encourage young people with this message. So this film was designed to pitch my platform to high school principals. Here's my question. Do you know of any film festivals that are designed to promote social movements or platforms? I don't care about winning awards. I just want to get your eyes on the film. Here's a link to it. It's called The Little Alien Speaks. We'll link it in the show. Thank you again for all you do. I'm rooting for you, Ulrich, and all your recent opportunities, and you, Liz, with your witch project. Anything I can do to help you guys, let me know. Cheers, Earl Martin. So, Liz, do you know any film festivals for for Earl? I know that you you mentioned some in an email, but what what do you got? Yeah, what I emailed Earl is I suggested. I mean, there's Human Rights Watch Film Festival, and then there's Illuminate Film Festival. Very different. So, Human Rights Watch is you know like I would say documentaries about social justice movements, con- you know, global conflicts. I mean, it, I think it's in the title. It's about human rights. It's uh, social movements, and then Illuminate. Film Festival, which I think is more of like a new age bent on mindfulness and in terms of a film festival. And it's a really well, res- both are really respected film festivals. I didn't watch Earl's film, so I don't know if these are just like wildly bad suggestions for the movie. But in terms of like impact related film festivals, there are a bunch, you know, like if it was an environment or environmental film, it would be the DC Environmental Film Fest. If it's, you know, if it it's related to a specific cause, we'd have recommendations. So I just went really general. What 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 would you say? Well, I have also not watched the movie, but what I would say is that, you know, find a film festival that's like got some merit, you know, and is like well respected. And those sort of film festivals, if they're not genre specific, they're interested in projects like this. They want things that are, that have like a message and a point and like a human cause behind it, you know, and like have actual, you know, real world applications to, to things that matter, you know? So I would say pick the film festivals that you feel like your movie would be like a good fit for as far as like quality and like content, you know? So like, don't like go for Sundance necessarily, but like go for ones that like, you know, like the regional festivals we always talk about, like the... Tallgrass, Oxford, Heartland, Cleveland. Exactly, Heartland. That was what I was trying to remember. Yeah, all those ones. Phoenix even. Like, you know, go, go after those film festivals that like, you know, are in that zone where they like, Maybe they have a little bit of uh, the big budget movies that come through, but like they're really trying to focus on on true indie movies and go after those. Like go after the ones that you like the most that are maybe nearest where you live, you know, so you could actually show up to the film festival and just try to get some, you know, accolades from there. You know, because I feel like if you can get like a couple cool laurels from these like really like well-respected film festivals, I think that would make a big difference in, you know, getting the word out on your on your your message. But yeah, I don't really know any specific film festivals that would be right for like, you know, the high school principals would look at. I think they would like high school principal who is interested in filmmaking 
they're going to go to the the best well-known film festival in their area. So like, you know, go after those like hot regional film festivals. I think those are the ones to, to focus on. Or I mean, if you're looking to connect specifically with that type of person going to local nonprofits that are art sport organizations like Ghetto Film School or Echo Park Film Center or, you know, what School of Visual Arts is, you know, different and that's a school, but different educational programs that support young filmmakers could be an idea or just find a nonprofit that has a cause that's directly related to this film Earl, and pitch to the nonprofit so that they could screen it at their fundraisers on their newsletter, whatever it is to get eyeballs for them. But speaking of people sending us questions, comments, and suggestions, you can always do that. And just email us at podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. And if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. We want you to shout out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of the programs they offer. We really like this company, organization, association. So head on over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. They do a lot of great programs that connect writers to industry professionals. We want to thank Rick Dugdell for coming on the show, Sam Anaya from Katrina Wan PR for setting up this interview. Thank you to editor Jeff Rymoot for doing the editing. And thank you, as always, to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks for listening to all of you and talk to y'all next week. I'm Alra Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out later this year. Wait, September 13th, all right? Yeah, let me do that again. (laughs) And my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out on September 13th. There we go.